Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Okay, welcome back for our concluding episode of our Revelation Trilogy. We're recording this in January 2021, and I think it's we, it behooves us to take stock of our our historical location as we are doing this historical podcast. So Travis, of course, the context I'm hinting at is the coup that was attempted a few days ago on January 6th. We're dealing with Christian eschatology, the, the study of the last things in the last book of the New Testament. And we're in the last days of the Trump presidency. And I just was just wondering how how you experienced this event and whether it felt apocalyptic to you. Oh, absolutely. You know, one of the things that characterizes a lot of apocalyptic literature is signs. There will be signs and portents, right? Things that have never happened before will take place. And I don't know, I felt the world shake a little bit. The bedrock of democracy, of American democracy at least, maybe felt a little flimsier than we once thought it to be. Felt some tremors there. Some end times earthquakes up in here. I don't know. What did you think, Klaus? Yeah, so I mean, I did experience this as a pretty traumatic, but also sort of absurd event. And I guess that that does link it into my impressions of the book of Revelation that are at once, yeah, extremely dangerous and ominous feeling, but also just so bizarre as to be comical or absurd at different moments. But there was a direct tie-in to what we've been working on in the the marches leading up to the Capitol building because some of these very Christian right-wing demonstrators were carrying signs with scriptural references that are tagged to particular political figures like Mike Pompeo or Joe Manchin or New York's own AOC. And so the AOC scriptural tag on this big sign next to the guy with a, with a, a Jesus and an Israeli flag sign and all other kinds of different flags and emblems is Revelation 2.20. So, Travis, what sense should we make of this pinning of AOC onto Revelation 2.20? Okay, well, Revelation 2.20 is where we hear about a woman called Jezebel. And the Son of Man is giving instruction to the churches. And in this one, he says, the voice of the Son of Man says, But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet and is teaching and beguiling my servants to practice fornication and to eat food sacrificed to idols, etc., etc. There are associations with adultery and with misleading the people of God. And so on the one hand, Jezebel is this name John of Patmos is using is taken from the Hebrew Bible and is sort of has these associations of a false prophet, of a fallen woman, a bad person. And so here we see in the Revelation context, it sounds like a rival to him, a religious rival who has a different view on whether it's okay to eat food sacrificed to idols. You'll recall perhaps that Paul thinks that in general, if you don't sort of 
do it in front of weak Christians, then it's okay to eat that food that's sacrificed to idols, but you don't want to lead someone else astray. So that's sort of Paul's take on this. And it sounds like this woman, whatever her real name was, had a similar view to Paul, but John of Patmos thinks that this is not okay. And we feel a kind of personal animosity against her here, which I don't know what you think about the broader context of revelation and misogyny, Klaus, but I'm interested in your take on this because I, in the last episode, I hinted a little bit, I tried to show some places where imagery of the feminine appears and it's just almost always bad. So how might we connect this passage, which occurs early in the book and a personal relationship to that more the broader symbolic of, you know, the whore of Babylon, etc. Yeah, I think the point that Jezebel, which is just a, a code name for false temptress prophetess, I think it's really important, as you note, to say that this is a rival, potential rival to, to John, the seer of Patmos, or to whoever wrote Revelation, that he's putting in the mouth of the Son of Man, uh, who's dictating these letters. And it's so funny, the, the part about eating the food sacrificed to idols, it's like sort of like a, an ancient equivalent to uh, partying too hard or something, or it's <laughs> taking like illicit drugs or something. I, that's always the, that's how I translate it in my mind. I don't, I don't know if that's right, but, but this, sort, this sort of looseness. Yeah, I think that's totally apt. It's this, it's this cultural thing, right? Like, oh, are you fitting in with that broader culture around you? Are you doing what everyone else does? Or are you setting yourself apart as religiously different, as holy in some way? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if AOC's hoop earrings are, are the equivalent to eating the, the food of idols. I don't, I don't know how these people read this text, but uh, one can speculate. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think um, this sort of misogynistic apocalyptic reference really ties into the the worldview of the contemporary uh christian nationalist right uh in terms of their views of how gender roles should be pursued and the idea that a really powerful provocative outspoken clearly demonstratively socialist person like aoc makes it onto this list of false prophetesses is is uh probably to be expected, but almost so like humorously obvious that it, it's it's jarring to see. So yeah, I see this question that you raised about how misogyny matters for revelation goes back, you know, takes us thankfully uh, some distance from the white nationalist Christian American context. And there's this sense that it's playing off of these older biblical prophetic tropes, but that that's just, that doesn't answer the question that just pushes it back further. And this question of why foreignness and why rivalry and why uh, religious pluralism is associated with prostitution and femininity, the associations are ingrained into Christian and I guess also like Jewish theological polemical discourse. But I think it's, it's healthy to not get too numb to it. And, and just sort of keep asking, like, why does this, why is this the, the uh, favored metaphor or image of these things? Good. Yeah, I have to agree. I think that there's the easy read, of course, is that you've got this personal rival that helps color the already existing religious preference for the masculine, occasional denigration of the feminine. And 
vivifies it in his end times. All right, well, let's right the wrongs here imagery. So that's at least my initial reaction to how I see the relationship between this this Jezebel and these other figures you see later in the book, where he's taking that rival and casting her heavenward, even as he reduces her to her body, reduces her to a symbol of the feminine. One of the things you said, you, you tied it into Paul in terms of the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Something I wanted to, to go over was how the vision of the devil we get in Revelation over the last two episodes that we've covered compares to some other images and portrayals of the devil we've seen so far. So maybe it makes sense to start with Paul. Just note our sense of like what's similar and what's different. One thing that struck me just to sort of get started as being basically similar was that there were all these different manifestations of of the devil and the demonic and the satanic. The powers and principalities, is that what we're thinking of here? Yeah, exactly. Powers, principalities, thrones, angels. There's just like this endless enumeration of all kinds of occupants of these celestial and, and nefarious cosmologies that that uh, are there to beguile and lead the gospel followers astray. So that sort of uh, that piling on of adversaries struck me as being similar. What about you? What what's did, what did you see as similar or different there? We have different images that reappear throughout Revelation of the baddies. We have different instantiations of them. And so I would say you have a repeating cast of characters. You have these, your symbol of evil doesn't cohere in one individual character who is constantly the source of evil with the caveat that you do have the dragon who is called the serpent who is called the devil who is called satan you have that one instance in revelation 12 and 20 when satan gets cast out and so there's a moment where i think we're at least tempted to read that as oh here's the here's the moment where you have the one the character of the devil but there's an attempt to say that there's a finality to evil. There's a finality after the millennium to the source of temptation in the world to all evil as represented by one celestial body. And that's in part because, you know, after Satan gets thrown into the lake of fire, the pit of fire, then so do death and Hades. Right? There's, there's a real moment like we are done here. And those are, those are th- like death especially is, um, personified in Paul too, where Paul we seem to be talking about on the one hand, these sort of literal manifestations and angels. And then sometimes it seems more allegorical, like with the law or death. And you get that, you get that, um, right. a bit in revelation too. The other thing that to me that seemed different is, um, the apparent level of concern. I sometimes I felt like the, the evil powers in Paul were sometimes almost seemed like an after apart from law and the and death, which he really focuses on, especially in the really theological letters like Galatians or, or Romans apart from that like sometimes I, I felt like the de- the demonic per se seems like an afterthought in Paul it's just like oh yeah we all know we got we got to deal with this guy whatever let's just let's just get on with it um, whereas it seems a little bit more uh, histrionic or you know uh, em- embellished in Revelation um, by contrast it's it's tough in Paul to be sure because I'm never quite sure what his rhetorical purpose is in setting up such a strong sense of God's power over the world. 
relative to those evil powers who are clearly less in Paul? Is he doing that to kind of convince himself, convince his audience? Because this is a group of people who are in the midst of some serious persecutions, right? So I think God is ultimately in control is perhaps a rhetorical strategy there. He could have easily taken what I think is quite different in Revelation it feels different. Even though you similarly have a God who's quite in control, there's all this retribution. There's all this vengeance that's being taken on those, yes, less powerful, but still very present symbols of evil in Babylon, standing for Rome, etc. What about John? John, to me, one of the biggest things that stood out as being different, um, and we use the, the Jewish annotated New Testament for both John and Revelation, which is a really magnificent and illuminating edition of the New Testament, uh, showing the Jewish context and traditions and everything that gets left out of Sunday school uh, for explaining these texts. Um, and I felt like the thing that jumped out to me, especially through that commentary, was how Judaism or how like Judaism is a bit anachronistic since it doesn't quite it doesn't really map onto reality in the late ancient period, but the late antique version of different Jewish practices and theologies, its position in each of them and how valorized and upheld it was in revelation. While it seems as we talked about at length in John is really complicated. And uh, there's even an identification between Jewish practitioners of Jewish tradition with the devil in John, which seems radically different than what we're encountering in Revelation. Right. It seems those Jewish communities who were observing Torah and continuing those ancient traditions were kind of the good guys in Revelation. And John was so much more mixed. Is that what you're thinking of? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And maybe it's more complicated with John than I can really make out right now, but it does there does seem to be this level of skepticism and hostility against those sort of Torah observing Jews in John. Mm-hmm. But of course, this whole, the whole thing we talked about, like with Judeans and Jews makes it confusing, but it's just way less ambiguous in revelation that this is positively valued. Absolutely. So what about the Dead Sea Scrolls? What about the, we've got these two very apocalyptic texts in the war scroll, right, from the Dead Sea Scrolls that also depicts some sort of Armageddon. And here, actually, it's weird. When I went to Revelation to prepare for these episodes, I thought there was going to be a bit more description of a battle. And actually, there's sort of a little bit in Revelation 20, they're sort of preparing for battle and there are troops and things. And we have trumpets and other symbols from war certainly that's all there but it wasn't quite as military as i was sort of imagining in my head i I think i had this idea of revelation as being having war as more central to its uh plot if if we can say that revelation has a plot and that may just be um where the rub is because revelation is not really a narrative a story it's an unfolding of a series of visions right so but let's take what we have from revelation around 
the end times and good and evil and some of the military imagery that appears and think about that in relation to the Dead Sea Scrolls and that version of Armageddon. What similarities do you see? What differences do you see, Klaus? I, th- I thought you were going to say when you were really expecting the military imagery for Revelation that you were like hoping for like a Schwarzenegger movie or Rambo or something like that was what you were really just like sort of like hoping for that kind of uh, that kind of aesthetic. I was thinking more like Tolkien, honestly, that that was what it was going to be more like. It's like the orcs were going to come (laughs) riding in or something. I'm not sure exactly what I had in mind, but the clash of the swords, the, the, the din of the battle. And that wasn't really there. Yeah. Okay. Less, less Schwarzenegger. Got it. Okay. Less Um, Schwarzenegger for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I have the immortal, the immortal quote from predator in my mind as you were talking, if it bleeds, we can kill it. Um, I would definitely uh, like to read a version of Revelation written <laughs> as if it's a script for Schwarzenegger. So if you're interested in, you know, putting that together, Klaus, I'm I'm here for that. If the lamb bleeds, we win. You know, that, that sort of thing. Oh, God, um, that lamb is so creepy with all those yeah. eyes. Okay. Yeah. Maybe the predator was the lamb from Revelation. Maybe that's, I, that's, that's, the, that's the, the hidden reveal. That we'll I get. think that that's the scariest part of Revelation for me is the lamb. Yeah, Oof. good good point. I think I think the lamb is as scary as as any demonic monster we encounter. And I think I would say probably John of Patmos would be like, yeah, cool, you get it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, to compare it to the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? The thing you said, like, there's way more military detail in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, yeah, it's, some scholars think that the Essenes were stockpiling weapons. Like, there, there's there's way more of that. Like we're going to go into the the formations and the swords and the strategies and the military equipment and how we're copying the Romans on certain things and how we're going to, you know, how we're going to dispatch with the Kittim and this, this battle and this and that. So there's a lot more of that kind of detail there. Something that is what I found to be very similar is the kind of preoccupation with the temporality and the way that that temporality is quantified it's a bit neater in the war scroll where you have this hebdomadic multiples of seven oh, right, right. Like structure for how everything's going to go down with, yeah. the, with the, the caveat of like, what does a day mean in, in the week of this, of this unfolding? I don't know. Um, uh, you know, probably more than a day. Uh, whereas with revelation, and we're going to talk about this later, but like all kinds of numbers and dates and years are thrown about about what's going on. Um, but there's this preoccupation, I think, with uh, with quantification that that does seem to be of a pretty firm family resemblance between the two, at least in terms of style. Um, and yeah. they're both drawing on the Hebrew, the prophetic Hebrew Bible and Ezekiel and those sorts of things. So I think they they take that on similarly. At a really basic level, I think it gives a kind of sequence and order to both of the narratives even if they are ephemeral in revelation you get a sense through adding numbers to it like oh this is real oh this is going to happen because you've got seven bowls of wrath (laughs) that are going to go boom 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 right there's something um that cuts through the otherwise dreamlike quality of the of the book as a whole that it's, we have these uh, impressions, if you will, of order 
and it does it never holds they keep resetting themselves and of course as you said we have other numerological details that are doing other things but one of the senses i get is like okay there's a tidy section here there's a tidiness to the otherwise untidy non-narrative yeah so that makes it less schwarzenegger and more like david lynch where this sort of there's sort of a mysterious clarity to the, the numbers and and they they sort of help orient <laughs> us through the 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 twilight of the the strange dreamlike quality of, of the story i think maybe that's a good tie into just we're sort of referencing the sort of uncanniness of reading revelation and it's it, the way it sort of defies any kind of organization sometimes like just maybe it's worth registering our personal reactions to it like when you read revelation like what how is it as a read like what is your experience of it okay i'm gonna start someplace kind of strange which is the very end i remember reading this in my teens for some reason why was i reading revelation as a teen you're gonna have to ask teenage travis but i remember the end where it says you know if you change one iota of this text you are screwed forever and that's the end do not change this is unchangeable do not add anything this is unchangeable this is forever this so there's a weight that gave the text a kind of weight to me even though it's so thick with references that i could not understand at that time and still (laughs) i'm sure do not fully understand now but like the sense of order that i got from the numbers it's an impression of weight, of seriousness. And so the tone of Revelation is one thing that strikes me throughout. And that's also shot through by the characters, the wild characters that we've already talked about a little bit. But this unfolding, this you know, revealing, which is what the name of the book means, in these sequences is ceremonial, I suppose. It feels like a terrible liturgy, like a shocking, horror-filled uh, religious ceremony. Yeah, I, I, that that makes a lot of sense. And I think that that's, again, I think John of Patmos would be like, Travis, you got it. You and your teenage self, like you, you understand. <laughs> this is a horrible r- ritual and you're the altar boy. I mean, um, uh, right. so uh, yeah, I think you're onto it. But um, my links or personal reactions to it you talked about liturgy and one of the things we were talking about before is how this text uh, is used or not used in in various churches liturgies or sort of patterns of 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 worship and ritual um and uh that it's part of the the advent season the season of the expectation of the birth of Jesus Christ and then also the, the second coming of Christ as you as you explained to me. And it reminds me like just a like a sort of biographically, I remember having uh my mother explain to me Jesus's importance and she would be like, he's the Alpha and the Omega. And I was always like, okay. Uh and she explained like that one is the beginning and one's the end of the Greek alphabet. Um and it's reading Revelation when I'm like, oh, this is where that comes from. Um, this sort of apocalyptic, the apocalyptic edge to the Hallmark Christmas season is there. And uh, it's interesting just how, especially in ritual through liturgical time, beginnings and ends are sort of looped together in a, in a circle, in a ring. It feels so disjointed from the rest of the scriptural accounts of who Christ is. And granted, they are different 
right? From Paul's Christ to the Christ of each of the Gospels, we have variations to be sure and significant differences. But here I feel like you've pulled back the flesh and we're looking at some sort of skeletal alien Christ. And so when I think of your mom explaining the Alpha and Omega, I think about this baby born uh, in a feed trough Um, And we have that account. We have the adult man who's hanging out with people who are reviled of various kinds, whether because they're associated with a powerful government that's overtaking this backwater of the Roman Empire, or because they are dirty and smelly and poor, or suspected of being serious sinners. We have that Jesus. And then now we have like crazy zombie Jesus. That's what this feels like to me. And so I guess that's another impression I have of this book is like, wait, who is, who is this? Yeah. And I, and I think that that's interesting because part of what this podcast does is we ask like, who is evil or what does it mean for evil to be personified? And here that we're getting the, uh, the other side of that, which is like, like who is God? And like you're saying, you think you know something about that from the Gospels, but from baby to hanging out with uh, the downtrodden to hanging from a cross. Those are some of the major milestones. And then you get like person with a sword sticking out of both sides of their mouth and right. seven eyed lamb. And uh, it's a way of, it's a way I think from a certain end of this, of different communities that adhere to this, of these Gospels to say like, Right, you can know something, but like there's a part of this that is going to blow your mind that is not translatable into narrative in a way that is as strange as the Gospels are, is like a little bit more reassuring. Like it can appear on religiously themed greeting cards or, you know, in the way that the I haven't really seen the seven eyed lamb on many holy cards or, or seasonal cards. I'm sending you one next year. That's (laughs) definitely happening. I'm going to draw it myself. Okay. That's actually interesting. What if this is a kind of apophatic corrective to the evangelical? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and savior? In other words, you, you can't, um, that's not really possible. You are looking at you're looking at Jesus from one very narrow angle, and this is not necessarily giving you something that's digestible. It sits here as a symbol that says, "This is unknowable." Ultimately, <laughs> you silly human, you can't possibly get the fullness of what God is, and in that way, is kind of maybe helpful theologically for those who are invested in it. Okay, sermon over. Thank you. I'm done. Great. Great pod. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> okay. It's a wrap. Do you want to talk about the millennium? Yeah. Millennium as told by the millennials. Uh. Barely. I'm like barely a millennial. It depends on the, on the numerological interpretation. I'm an old millennial. In other words, just in case anyone is confused, I'm not a young millennial at all. Maybe maybe for a bonus, we can watch the... Uh, the Millennium show that was like a spinoff of the X-Files that I, I never watched because it seemed too scary when I was oh. an adolescent. Okay, I'm into anyway. that. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we're talking about the Millennium a little bit. Uh, and like before, we, we covered all of this in, in a haze. I feel like when you're trying to make a podcast narrative of Revelation, you're just like sort of doomed to, to haziness and some cool images. Speaking of doomed, um, yes, exactly. 
Yeah. <laughs> but like, uh, where does the millennium feature in revelation? Like what is it? What is its part of the plot? Travis? It's like toward the end we've had, I feel like the bowls of wrath have already happened and it's been spilled out all over. That's not fun for anyone involved. So post, uh, some, some folks call those the tribulations, right? But if you're just a, your average reader of Revelation, it's a lot of bad stuff has happened. And there's a period of a thousand years that seems to contrast with some of that dark, horrible, stereotypically apocalyptic imagery in which the martyrs are going to rule over the earth with Christ. And this is Revelation 20. And one of the features of the millennium that makes it kind of maybe nice, it's mixed as we will get into, is that Satan is bound during this time. And that binding is something I definitely want to talk about a little bit more. So why does Satan get tied up? And then why, in God's name, does he get let out again before his final demise? Okay, so I did a little bit of digging around with the help of our Jewish annotated New Testament. Uh, Using my footnotes well there, I dug around and found some other examples of binding up of demons to see, like, what's especially to answer my question about letting out the demon once you've bound the demon for a while. I didn't really find parallels, but there are some narratives that will be familiar to some of us. So first of all, one of the sponsors of our pod, Asmodeus, shows up in Tobit. The angel, Raphael, ends up binding the demon from that story in remotest Egypt. But we've talked before about Enoch and Jubilees and the Watchers. So there are some examples of binding demons in both of those, Azazel in Enoch and Mastema in Jubilees get bound. And for Mastema, it's nine tenths of the demons after the sort of negotiation about how what percentage of the demons are going to be left on earth you've got a tenth of them so um and then 90 percent of them are descend into the place of condemnation there um and that's their being boundness there uh so i did not find an example of letting the cat back out of the bag once you have bound up your demon to mix metaphors uh, yeah, I was gonna say we we have a parallel. I mean, you're a you're a, a notorious dog owner, and so you, you gotta let the dog out sometimes. You know, the dog's been in, the true. dog's been inside. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so that's why. That's right. So then the demon gets out, but in Revelation twenty, it's it's for this final battle, right? And then, but we don't get a big long account of the battle, and then then it's time for satan to be thrown into the lake of fire ultimate destruction for satan is what's waiting at the end of the thousand years right yeah and i think what we're rubbing up against here is this question of why did there have to be a thousand years when satan's imprisoned if we're at the end of revelation which we're basically almost there why not just do the throwing of the demon into the lake of fire at that point like what's the point of having a thousand years between the tribulations and the final judgment. So yeah, we've, we've said this is sort of a strange plot to follow uh, if it has a plot. And if it had a plot, this would have really killed it, right? (laughs) It's like, just- Okay, pause everyone. Things are going to be kind of vaguely good for a while for no reason. Maybe we're fulfilling a prophecy. I I don't know, but- 
here yeah. we are. Yeah. And so we're not the only ones who had problems with this as a reading experience, as our book club experience of, of Revelation. <laughs> <laughs> um, some, some early Christians also were a bit leery of, of Revelation. And even the ones who didn't think it should be thrown out were like, we'll keep it. We're not going to talk about Revelation 20 in the millennium. Like we're just, we're going to, we're going to keep this out. And we have a number of different ways of making sense of it. Uh, so the people who did want to keep it, some people just wanted to get rid of it. For the people who did want to keep it, and this a certain subsection of them is important for the history of the place where we're recording, which is in the United States, there was a really big Protestant enthusiasm. There's like these, uh, these revival periods called the Great Awakenings. And uh, during the Great Awakening, first or second, I can't keep track of how many the damn are, um, there is this sense that like, oh, like we have, we are entering the the millennium. We are going to, we're, we're in the millennium right now. And we're just going to keep preaching the gospel and having these revivals and being in the spirit on, you know, we're going to keep improving the world through these revivals or, or eventually, you know, thanks imperialism and colonialism through these foreign missions to China and elsewhere and and, 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 and all over the Pacific and, and Africa. Uh, this is all part of this, this this energy, this apocalyptic energy of like, we're going to keep Christianizing the world and, and you know, and, and making it a market economy and making it subservient to the United States and everything. We're going to keep doing that until everything is so great and then Jesus is going to come back. Right. We're basically bringing about the millennium ourselves. We're kind of giving a little boost or maybe God is operating through us to create these awesome circumstances that will count. And it's like, oh, now we're living into the millennium. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, this is called post-millennialism that like we're yeah. like, it's already started. The mm-hmm. party's already here. Like just, just sit back and enjoy. I think this is also a millennialism, but it's like it, the millennium starts from the moment Jesus dies on the cross and defeats the devil. Like that's when it starts. Um, and so that takes us back to revelation. We're like, is this a vision of the future or a narration of what's already happened? Unclear. People disagree. The post-millennial, let's just keep getting more and more Christianized and getting more and more, evangelized and and having these revivals until the world is ready to welcome Jesus as its personal Lord and Savior, that's really big and really optimistic in the yeah. 18th and 19th century right, right. in the in the US and, and other places too, um, but especially here. The other big one I think we're going to talk about is less optimistic. Travis, like what, we had post-millennialism. We got to talk about pre-millennial. Dun, dun, dun. Yes, absolutely. There's another camp that says what feels right is sort of gathering in the faithful few and waiting it out. The millennium has not come yet, and it's going to be dark and scary times until that happens. It's a pessimistic worldview with respect to human society and is quite critical of these social reform movements springing out of especially the second great awakening, these missionary movements, Bible societies, you know, temperance movements that are all coming out of that time period. Instead here, there's this sense that 
social reform is doomed to fail because nothing can get better until the return of Christ. And that is our premillennial view. They read Revelation 20 quite literally, that Christ will come back for a 1,000-year reign, and this is a future event. This is a prediction of the future, is how they interpret the text. Right, right. And so this view, this is frequently, this is a feature of, in the modern period, um, Protestant fundamentalists. Uh, and there is a set of pretty serious political stakes to this. This is this idea that, like, as you're saying, this is a future event and it's literal and it's going to be a political ruling of the world by Christ for a thousand years. Uh, a godly kingdom imposed and keep keep the image of the handmaid's tale out of your mind as you as we as we discuss because <laughs> it, it flies into my mind um but uh it's going to be this this holiness dictatorship and one of the big proponents of this view darby john nelson darby he discusses the the millennium and he's like well yeah like people are going to get better but like the, some people are not going to be better and just the power of christ is going to compel them to to stay in their lane and the power and of not Christ compels you. The power, power of Christ, Christ compels, compels you. you. Exactly. Yes. Get mm-hmm. some exorcism energy in here. Yes. Um, but uh, but yeah, there's even even in the millennium, which for the post millennialists and the, the Great Awakening people, like Jonathan Edwards, was like, oh, it's it's just going to be like in the air, and everyone's going to get better. Yeah. Uh, the pre millennialists are like, even during the millennium, we're going to have to kick some asses. Is, is the vibe I right. get from from John Nelson Darby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People will still sin. People will still fall during the millennium. I mean, like, wow, they have such a view of human nature that even if you're literally in a theocracy ruled over by Christ and the end of the world is nigh, not going to be enough for human beings. As you noted, that pessimism really goes with the the sense that this is like a gathered few, uh, which reflects the early formation of the fundamentalist church as a very narrow minority of mainstream Protestantism. But also the sense that you get in, especially in the history of the United States, of the separatism, um, especially in the sort of the light of the, the Scopes Monkey Trial, the sort of retreat from mainstream society up until like the 1980s and 70s with the moral majority and Jerry Falwell, um, you know, pe- characters for a different episode. Um But yeah, and this this also links us to how we started, which is which is like this sort of christian white nationalistic view of things um the pre-millennial dispensation view of of the apocalypse and of revelation really came back into the mainstream probably you know through through fundamentalist christian teachings but also through the left behind novels by lahey and, and jenkins um that were really popular uh among young millennials, apparently, but this this idea of a coming dangerous period before the millennium, a seven years of tribulation, is is sort of translated into more uh, recognizable terms that are sort of less mythological, I guess, than than in the Book of Revelation. Um, and we're going to get into one of the main features of that in a second. Um, but yeah, I think this does this. There is something about this this view that does lend itself to the kind of uh, maybe nationalistic or more the more paranoid style of U.S. Christianity. Yeah, absolutely. There's something about combining a very literal style of interpreting sacred scripture with the political revolution, which is part of what's seen in Revelation, right? You've got a government 
that is ruled over by God as one of the endpoints of this system. So I think it really leads toward mis I would say as a practicing Christian I can't help myself but say misreadings of this text so there's a lot of temptation to say well we've got the answers here and the answer is those people who I think are bad are going to get punished at the end of time thrown into the lake of fire along with Satan and death and the try I will rise triumphant I've been hidden the righteous few we've been hidden here away but we are God's chosen ones and the end is ours. Yeah, exactly. I think it might be really quickly. Um, there's like a, there's a really interesting aspect of this this theology about the millennium. But just really quickly to talk about like who are the main characters or actors in this scene. And we've mentioned John Nelson Darby, um, and Darby is a 19th century uh, Anglican clergy person of Irish stock, um, and is part of the Church of England in Ireland in the wake of the Great Famine, um, becomes disillusioned with the church structure and the hermeneutics of that church during, I guess, what was probably some pretty tough times ministering to the poor in Ireland in the wake of this catastrophe, and has a serious riding accident, I believe, and then as while recuperating from this accident has this sort of spiritual experience that pushes him towards a kind of way of reading the Bible and a kind of literalistic way of reading the Bible, it's sort of a, a difficult term because it turns out it's actually really hard to do anything. That's just completely a literal reading of anything. Um, and it's through these traumas that we get this sort of this encounter with mass death and cynicism about institutions and, you know the experiences and interpretations of what turned what seemed to be a pretty uh, a pretty talented person for languages and for organizing and for propagating a message. Um, but yeah, that's that's sort of the background on Darby. He toured throughout the Anglophone world, but also in in different parts of the world too, um, Australia, Canada, Australia, I believe, but the U.S. as well. And sort of planted these seeds, um, and so has this big influence. But this this church is is not very big and tends to splinter and get into fights. One gets the impression that there's a race to the exclusive truth, you know. And when you have that as the fundamental impetus for the movement as a whole, it's sort of you can see why those fractures. <laughs> Would And also, I would say, the move against a hierarchical structure, ecclesial structure, sort of opens up questions about who gets to interpret. So if everybody's got that sacred text in their hands, then who's got the Holy Spirit? One of the big ways in which this view of the millennium and this way of interpreting Revelation and the whole Bible was propagated was through the, the Schofield Bible. Um Again, a sort of early 20th century uh, study Bible that has um, notes and it has this, these sorts of chains of references of scriptural verses and images throughout the entire Bible so that you can sort of see where references and, 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 and things are sort of appearing and where they come from as you're reading them. So you can sort of see how the whole thing is is sort of stitched together with these different references. Um, but Schofield adopts Darby's uh, dispensationalist premillennial uh, vision of the eschaton wholeheartedly and sort of just asserts it 
in his his uh, edition of the of this this reference edition of the Bible. I'm sure not all of our listeners know what you mean by dispensationalist. So let's just quickly talk about how Darby and others in his movement pull apart the kind of sequence of the world biblical you know meta history into these seven periods and these periods help our kind of dispensations the way that god interacts with humanity is different in each of these sort of paradigmatic periods i guess that's a quick primer i I really i'm really glad you brought that up because it's one of the things i like to chuckle at the most when i think about dispensationalism because darby has human history divided into these seven periods um innocence, conscience, human government, law, grace, kingdom. My gosh, it turns out most of human history happened in like the first two books of the Bible. Like I, you know, it, it's so really, good. So good. <laughs> I'm really glad that's a, that's that's how, that's where all the action was for all of human history was um in Genesis and Exodus. Well, yeah, and the 7th period is grace. Are we in grace now? Is that where we are? Grace feels really long. Grace feels really long. Grace, grace, yeah. Grace is a big placeholder. Okay, great. So the deal with dispensationalism is that God deals with humanity differently in each of these dispensations. And so uh, the rules change depending on the timing and with whom God is dealing with. Um, And so this is, this one of the strange things about this with Darby is uh, part of his inspiration for interpreting scripture is to see this radical dichotomy between Jews and Christians throughout the Bible, um, which doesn't seem so weird considering the history of Christianity. Um, but considering that the word Christian barely appears in the new Testament and that the, as we've sort of been showing, I think over the last two episodes, there isn't really Christianity as a thing in the new Testament. And so it's really anachronistic. And then it's also, racializing and depending on sort of an ethnic distinction between Gentiles and Jews and really like making that separation of Jews foundational to the dispensations. And so this is something that also plays into the nationalist, white nationalist uh, reception of, of this. Yeah, kind of it certainly wouldn't have been legible to John of Patmos, for example, like completely uh, yeah, foreign to right, his worldview. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, okay, yeah. I want to talk about the rapture. Like, since we're getting into, you know, this dispensation stuff, we're getting into Darby. Darby's really known for this, I'm going to call it a theological innovation. That's how I encounter it. Yeah. Yeah, the light bulb went off in the dude's head and he came up with the rapture. It sounds it sounds so relaxing. Like, I'm in, I'm in the mood for the yeah. rapture today. Um, but I guess it's not supposed to be very relaxing. Well, I learned all about it. Klaus, and it's your fault because you thought it would be a good idea for me to watch the 2014 Nicolas Cage movie, Left Behind. In a world gone crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I now everything that I know about the rapture is because of you and Nicolas Cage. So if you have any questions, you should ask me. And it's so bad because I, I, I thought it was my idea to watch this movie and then Travis watched it and told me it wasn't good, and then and the devil didn't appear, and then I didn't watch it. <laughs> but what did you learn? <laughs> so from the movie, what did I learn about the rapture? Basically, the world is going to be going along, and there will be some signs and portents in the forms of earthquakes and whatnot, but then suddenly people are going to vanish, 
just up into heaven. People leave and there's just a pile of clothes. They just zap into the air. It's kind of invisible, like, like, poof. And this creates problems, notably for airline pilots who are among God's chosen Christian people, not to be confused with the remnant of the Jews. They're they're well represented among the Jews. They really, I mean, like, the pilots, they are. Yeah. And then other people are left to, you know, fly the plane. Havoc ensues. Jordan Sparks's baby gets zapped all children get zapped which i found really weird because i was thinking of these fundamentalists as having such a pessimistic view of human nature that they would follow the late augustine and say babies are not going to heaven yeah that's what i learned the rapture happens quickly people just vanish into the air suddenly but when i was reading some more of darby it's like that's the thing christians are supposed to look forward to and the postmillennialists have it all wrong because then you don't get to hope for that you're not going to live a thousand years through the entire millennium at this point if it hasn't started already and he's confident that it has not so you just have to look for death and that's all you get to look forward to but he's like you should be like paul who thinks that the end of the world is coming in his lifetime. Of course, Paul was wrong about that. So, hmm, or, or was he? <laughs> or was he? Yeah, anyway. So that's a little bit of what I learned about the rapture in between Darby and it, Left Behind. And it's interesting. And I think Darby's Darby has like changed how we think about these texts. Like even 1 Thessalonians 4, there's a sense that those who have died and the believers will be sort of, will meet Jesus in the air. And what that sort of sense of like people vanishing like zap, Darby like combines this idea that people are going to meet Jesus in the air with Matthew twenty four, where like oh you know the, like two people two two women will be working next to each other and one will one will vanish and one will stay, and so it's like these way of like layering these texts upon each other, and then applying them to a text revelation that really doesn't have much of a reference to the the rapture at all, and yet you need to have these for Darby. Uh, you need to have these two texts in mind before you get to the Great Tribulation um, because, as you're saying, all of the loyal Christians are are beamed up like it's Star Trek. Yes. And this is theologically so important for him because we're supposed to be looking for that reunification. This is the promise to the church, that the church, as you know, sort of the bride of Christ, the church gets to reunite with God first. And that's the thing we are to look forward to and the privilege that we get before all of this horrible stuff happens. We don't have to live through the great tribulation. And so that's why it's so theologically important. It's sort of like your, your first prize. Here's your award, Christians. You did such a good job. Now, you're welcome. It's like, the hell with the flying nun. We right. get the flying bride. Exactly. You know, like get rid- so that's how he, I think that's the force that provides this impetus for the readings that he does, which seem, if you don't think theologically about it, so sort of strange to piece together when you just look at the biblical text. But I, I think I see, after a little bit of reading, where he's going with this, that he wants it to be a kind of reward and skipping over some horrible stuff that's going to happen toward the end. Yeah. To me, it almost seems cynical because it's like, oh, right. Like we live in a horrible world with these horrible governments and these horrible pseudo churches. And we should just be spared all of the unfortunate fallout from that. Like we don't deserve this. It's like, man, like, okay. Like, uh, and like far be it for me to wish suffering on people. But it's like, there's also the sense of like, well, where's the solidarity with the, uh, with the adulterous would be would be adulterous airline pilot like he needs someone too god damn it yeah and how do you pair 
such a pessimistic worldview of, of human nature with that, right? It has to do with a very strong read of grace, I think, but who gets that grace and why? And yeah, there's a lot of questions that Darby does not answer satisfactorily for me. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah, and it seems like Darby had these experiences and this turning point in his life and then just like with the the Schofield, like just categorically asserted these things without... Darby gives you more of an argument, but um, in what I've read... And gosh, no thought was left un- unwritten down and uttered in this guy's Oof, life. Uh, isn't the, that right? There is a lot there. His complete works are for sale, though, Klaus. Just in case you're wondering, you can place a bid on. Someone has the like collected volume of his entire work. Yeah, like the the hundred volume stocking stuffer for next Christmas. If 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 I'm not raptured before then. Yeah, I don't know. If this podcast becomes really successful, then Klaus, I will I will send it to you. That'll be your gift. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, I know. In good Christian fashion, it's like so polemical all the time. Like you can't express an idea without trying to humiliate someone else. So we have the rapture and it's like, it's also, you know, we've, we've talked about the devil nonstop on this podcast, obviously. Um, but it's, it's a sense that like the, there's going to be a hall pass a get out of jail free card for, for Christians not really having to come face to face with the beasts and the, the dragons and the beast of the land, the beast of the sea and the whore of Babylon. Um, it's left to this kind of abstract mythologization of revelation, but you won't actually have to come face to face with evil. And again, this sort of sheltering instinct, this sort of, this sort of uh, retreating, you know, we don't have to confront evil way of, of thinking about uh, the purpose of, of the community of, of, of believers in the world. I'm thinking about the way that this was dramatized in my new favorite movie, Left Behind, and the melodramatic family ties that are exposed, like the wife of a husband gets raptured to heaven. Who else gets raptured? Babies, all these children. So you have families torn apart, etc. And it reminded me of Leah Rimini, who did this Scientology expose on Netflix recently. Okay, so she talks about, she does a series, a special episode on Jehovah's Witnesses. And one of the ways that Jehovah's Witnesses try to keep their folks in the flock is by cutting them out entirely. If they question the faith, if they commit a sin, if they don't do their homework, if they don't stay in good standing with the church, then socially no one in the church is allowed to um, communicate with them, including family members that get torn apart by this. And so this idea of um, left behind as splitting families apart, as the human family no longer being together, got really dramatized and reminded me of how religious communities, whether imagined in an eschatological future or as they are lived out today, um, try and manipulate these family relationships to bring everyone together on their side, right? It's one more affective tool at their disposal to um, bring everyone to the truth and the light and the one way. I think in the way that modern right-wing or even even centrist, but to right-wing uh, Christianity has deified the family. That's it. Sort of makes the rapture more poignant because it's like, oh, you, if you're if you're not the right kind of person, 
then you're you're going to be left behind and you're going to miss your family. So there's like a there's that other HBO series, The Leftovers, that in some ways it seems to me is like a piggybacking off of Left Behind. There isn't quite the same sort of apocalyptic unfolding, though it is pretty weird. Um, but there's this sense of these people just dealing with the loss of these family members in their lives, you know, from who, who just disappear. And I haven't watched all of the left leftovers. Um, thank you, paywalls and HBO. But uh, there isn't this sort of, from what I could tell, the same sort of apocalyptic crescendo. Um, it was just like dealing with the the misery of of having a sizable fraction of the human population just disappear. Um, and dealing with that. And so I think it plays into the way familial structures in the nuclear family has become so central to what it means to be a Christian in so many discourses. Right. Even though I would argue that the Gospels generally have a great disregard for family ties. Jesus certainly is like, just, hey, can y'all leave your entire lives and come follow me? There's that. Um, there's his saying about his his mother and and other family members are coming to see him when he's busy, you know, doing Jesus things. And he's like, my family are the people who follow me, who follow, you know, who do good things, whatever, whatever, Jesus-y thing. Oh, it's and I think it's the point is that the the deification of the family is is very new. Pointing out hypocrisy can get tiresome, but in this case, it's like yeah, you read you read these New Testament texts, even the texts that are supposed to be the rapture texts, and yeah, there's no concern with that that aspect of human organization. The saying from Matthew, where there's the one woman who's going to get zapped up and the other one who isn't. You like the way I now I literally just read the rapture from a Darby perspective. From a, from a Star Trek perspective. Um, a Star Trek, yeah. From a Star Trek slash left behind perspective, yes. Two women working in the field and one will, uh, one will be gone and the other will remain. He's not crying about it. He's like, this is what will happen. It will, it will, this, this thing will take place in this way. But it's not this melodramatic affective. And they are sisters. And they're meant to be together for Jesus. <laughs> so one of the interesting things about Revelation, it's the last book in the New Testament, uh, and it's squeaked in. It, it, some people didn't want it to be there. Uh, so the, the canonization process, the process of putting the Bible together, occurs over the 2nd through the 4th centuries. And for many Christians who were concerned with uh, the idea, this sort of bad plot point of the millennium as being this moment of a thousand years of Christian governance on earth, they didn't really want to put this in. They didn't, you know, they wanted to reinterpret what the millennium meant. They didn't want this really uh, heavily theocratical uh, vision encoded in Christian uh, scripture. Um, And so there's a sense that this book maybe doesn't belong. And this sentiment appears in different parts. Um, one of the confusing things about Revelation is that it's the person who is credited in the story with the visions and the prophecies, John of Patmos. We have a bunch of Johns. Travis and I talked about the Johannine community and literature, previous episodes. And is this the same John, Travis? In Revelation, is John on Patmos the same John who wrote the fourth gospel and those letters? No, and that isn't just like a recent discovery with historical, critical, biblical scholarship. We had, back in the third century, 
we had Dionysius of Alexandria arguing that that's not possible from a linguistic perspective. The style, the Greek style between the fourth gospel, that is the gospel of John, and the book of Revelation are so disparate that it's just glaringly obvious. But he, for one, said, this is still a divinely inspired book. This is still scripture in spite of its sort of rough and tumble literary style. Yeah. And how would you compare the style of Revelation versus the of John? What are some things that make it impossible that this was written by the same person? I would say the prologue to John is really remarkable and interesting in, from a linguistic perspective. So there's that. There's who Jesus is. John is heavily sort of theological compared to the other gospel writers. So we know that there's a kind of unified message in the gospel of John about Jesus Christ as the word relating back to the creation of the very world. And that strong vision of the meaning of Christ is the first place I would go. And I would say, I'm not sure that's really recognizable in Revelation. We certainly have a high view of the divinity of Christ in both, but they're expressed so very differently. The Son of Man is not really making a strong appearance. Uh, the phrase itself aside, the Son of Man, the way we see the Son of Man in the clouds and as the Lamb is just not what you see in John, where you still, in spite of that beautiful poetry at the beginning, echoing some of the language of, of Genesis chapter 1, you get a very human Christ figure, and it's hard to imagine that transformation between the two. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think just how abstractly theological the gospel can get versus yeah. the sort of imagistic quality of Revelation is a, is a big difference. Did you, like, Jesus is the Lamb of God in John, and the Word, like, those symbols do map between the two of them but yeah the right. the the emotional register is completely different um <laughs> yeah. and uh yeah so I, I think yeah there's there's the the grammar and the rhetoric is very complex in the gospel of john and um as you said people in late antiquity noted how rough uh john of patmos's revelation was that this this, this was a this was a totally more uh, rudimentary grasp of Greek style and, and rhetoric than what we see in John, uh, the gospel. Um, so yeah, even, ba even back then they, they're like, this couldn't be the same person. Okay. Well, let's skip forward, you know, a few thousand years and check in with what happens in the reformation. So we, it makes it into the canon in the first few centuries of Christianity. And then there's kind of a moment of doubt when you have that initial split in in Western Europe, right? Yeah, so uh, Luther takes on the big project of translating the Bible, Hebrew Bible, New Testament into German in the 16th century. And he, he's got all the power, you know, he's cut out of the Roman church. So he's like, well, I can make some choices here. And for a while, it seemed like Revelation wasn't going to make the cut of his canon. He had qualms about it. Um, I can't even imagine why it's a totally normal book and fits yeah, right in with no, the rest of everything. Yeah, what a, what a normie. Um, but <laughs> it, once he realized that this could be such a potent tool for polemic against the Roman Catholic Church when Rome is the hidden code name for Babylon in, in uh, the city of Babylon, the great city in Revelation, 
his hesitancy started to slide a little bit after that. When he saw that, oh, like, if I, I understand that the figures, the false prophets, the antichrists of the book of Revelation, more on the antichrist later. It's a person who isn't actually named in Revelation, but gets put on, mapped onto, projected onto one beast or the other at different moments. But he saw that as as being a prophecy of the hypocrisy and falseness of the Roman Catholic Church. And it's like, oh yeah, like actually, now that I think about it for a second, this all works out for me. So let's keep it. So inspired and holy all of a sudden when it helps you beat down your enemies. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's Christian theology, man. Um, (laughs) um, Even though it's canonical in the Latin church, the sort of churches that were the Catholic church and then the churches that followed the Catholic church, like the Protestant churches that splintered off. It's also part of the biblical canon in Eastern Orthodoxy. But there are some differences. Like you were talking about you mentioned to me before how it's part of the the Latin church's liturgy even around Christmas. Is that true universally? It's not. Um, so in the Eastern Orthodox liturgy, except in really particular places, like, for example, as you would expect, there's a monastery on the island of Patmos. So, I mean, there, you know, that's an exception. But in general, it doesn't really appear in Eastern Orthodox liturgy. liturgy and was only adopted into the Eastern Orthodox biblical canon after the popularity of this commentary by a guy called St. Andrew of Caesarea in the sixth century. Yeah. I find that so wild. Like the, this biblical text is only, is only adopted after on, on the merits of this well-respected theologians commentary. Interesting. Is it sort of not the, not the, not the sequence that I'm really used to things being done in, but no, they had to kind of get talked into it about 300 years after, you know, everyone had settled on a canon, at least in the West. And it just shows how uh, <clears throat> how important politics, whether church politics or secular politics are for uh, setting doctrine and canon um, because of the struggles within the Eastern Church over issues like the millennium and how to interpret it. And this idea of a thousand year earthly reign of Christ was was popular or adopted by different sects labeled as heretical. And so it had a bad reputation. Um, and so it took it took some time to heal those wounds. But mm. still, you won't Or a hear. good theological argument, Klaus, that's possible, right? Yeah, Andrew pers- was like, listen, this is what it really means. He opened up the scriptures. And they're like, yeah, great. Great, we'll keep it, but like we're not gonna we're not gonna use it on Sunday. <laughs> no, this is not appropriate for children, let's be real. In the end, Adam Kotzko talks about revelation as a turning the tables and reinscribing persecution, but with the right targets. So instead of this fledgling religious community who are, you know, evidently Jewish and worshiping Christ. Instead of there being the target of persecution by the Romans in particular, the end of the world, this vision of the end, is a vision of justice in which God comes and doesn't end all persecution and like turn everything into happy rainbows, but just replaces the structure by trading out who's getting persecuted. And God takes over and says, these, the proper sufferers, are those who have been persecuting my people, namely Rome. So 
does much change? I guess my question, my ultimate question is if that's one of the central meanings of revelation, then despite this image of radical alterity that we see in representations of monstrous divine figures like the lamb, do we really get all that much alterity in God if God's justice looks very much like punishing your human enemies in a way that's legible to humans? Yeah, I was, I would, my, my mind was led to the, the same place where you have the, the lamb and the monsters are a way of defamiliarizing God. And yet by the end, God is, especially for Kotzko in his book, The Prince of This World, Kotzko is, is basic, point is basically that throughout Christian theology, there's a sort of functional equivalency between God and the devil, that they're, they're, the sort of cruelty and violence uh, and uh, basic malevolence is symmetrical between these two. Right. And it's also should be pointed out that this image of divine justice has a long history, right? Pointing back to both the prophetic books in the Bible, but also those early historical narratives of the ancient Israelites and Moses and what it looks like for God to look out for and protect God's people. That justice looks very much like human justice. It takes that form, at least in that (laughs) dispensation, if we're following Darby, right? And so I think it's understandable, at least, that the author of Revelation would imagine the end of the world as coming about and divine justice as coming about in similar terms to what's already part of that religious tradition. Right. And it just, it seems to waste that potential of the alterity that uh, the the potential of something new and also that stretches our imagination when it comes to imagining how God is going to deal with creation and with friends and enemies and these sorts of things. And right, it's not only just a repetition of scriptural precedence, but it's also this replication of an oppressor role. And it's like, right, you're, you know, it's, this is a, this is a revolution in the sense of like, we're just rotating, as you said, which, which party is being subject to violence and which party is, is carrying out that violence. Well, it's still early days, Klaus. We are only looking at some selections from the New Testament, which we're wrapping up now. There's a very long history of the devil still to go where lots of creative ways of thinking about divine justice, thinking about the character of the devil as sympathetic, which we've touched on a little bit in previous episodes, um, will take us. Thanks for joining us this week, and you'll be hearing from us soon. See you next time. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Ward, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you.